0: Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin, an Ottawa teenager arrested in an alleged terror plot targeting Jews. I'm also talking about the biggest political stories of 2023, the latest housing outlook, Ronald McDonald house, and Christmas TV specials. The GMH podcast begins now.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML.
0: RCMP have arrested a teenager in Ottawa In an alleged terror plot targeting the Jewish community, a a wild story that uh, burst on to our website at 900chml.com and globalnews.ca a couple of days ago. And the ramifications, or at least the reaction to it, still reverberating. Phil Gursky is a former CSIS analyst and now the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900chml. Phil, good morning. How are you?
2: Good, thanks. How are you today?
0: I'm good. So we know that the RCMP has charged this teenager with uh, a couple of offenses. Facilitation of a terrorist activity by communicating instructional material related to an explosive substance and instructing a person to carry out a terrorist activity against Jewish persons. This is pretty scary stuff.
2: It is. And I think that one of the more worrisome aspects is his age. I understand he's 15 years old, which is why he can't be named under the Young Offender Act, right? Um, We don't have a lot of details just yet, but from what I've been gathering by bits and pieces, it seems that the nature of the the, the ideology undermining the terrorism strikes me as probably Islamist, jihadian nature as opposed to far-right or whatever. Hmm. But there's a lot of things we don't know because of the suppression of information by officials.
0: With this person being 15, it it speaks to me that, you know, here's another example, probably, I'm, I'm making an assumption here, but another example of these bad actors utilizing social media to radicalize people, whether it's whatever, X, TikTok, you you name the social media site, we're seeing it all over the place.
2: We are, and there's no question that the younger generation lives online. I look even my my six-year-old grandson, he seems to be watching YouTube videos all the time. You know, that's where they get their information from, and that's where people identify them. And the important thing, though, to remember, though, is that he wasn't radicalized by the internet. The internet is just it's a vehicle. It's a tool that people use to spread information, recruit people, convince people to do certain things. And so I I think we want to walk back from this notion that it's all social media's fault. Social media is just another way of doing this. And, you know, before social media, there are other ways of recruiting people. So it's not so much the vehicle itself, but but I I do think you can make a good point that there's a lot of information out there and it's becoming next to impossible to suppress the information and take it off.
0: We're talking about this alleged terror plot targeting the Jewish community in Ottawa with a 15-year-old being arrested by the RCMP with Phil Gursky, former CSIS analyst and president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, David Cohen, who is the U.S. ambassador to Canada, joined the West Block on uh, Global TV and CHML over the weekend and said, anti-Semitism is always bubbling under the surface. And in, in little fits and spurts, it kind of explodes with incidents like this. Does that bubbling impact how Canada and and how a place like CSIS, an operation like CSIS, cracks these cases? Is it difficult because there's so much of this?
2: Well, it is difficult. And it's complicated by the fact that this particular form of terrorism or extremism is not the only one. Of course, we have people talk a lot about the far right, which, of course, has risen in importance in the last couple of years. You and I, am sure we've talked about, you know, uh, foreign interference, uh, foreign espionage and stuff. So I think the problem when you work for CSIS, the RCMP, is that you have all these priorities bubbling to the surface simultaneously, and you only have so many resources to look at it, and you never have enough. Thankfully, in this case, uh, CSIS and the RCMP, I understand, we're able to work together and identify this individual before he struck, before his plans were put into place. So I tip my hat to both organizations. But, yeah, the pressure is on. And then, unfortunately, when you work in that business, you're only as good as your last failure, And if they hadn't caught this young man in time and he had done something, we'd be talking about, why didn't the RCMP stop him? Why didn't CSIS stop him? So I think we recognize this was a successful operation by those two organizations, and we should congratulate them for it.
0: Another layer to this is this isn't just happening in Canada. There were similar arrests made in Europe with Jewish institutions being targeted as well. Can you speak to the information sharing that happens between countries? Does that happen a lot?
2: Oh, it's great. I mean, you know, so you've heard of the Five Eyes, the so-called Anglo Club, you know, us, the Americans, the Australians, New Zealanders, and the Brits. But, you know, when I was at CSIS, we have, we have a mechanism. It's called a Section 17 of mechanisms under our legislation to basically share information with any law enforcement or intelligence agency around the world. And we use that, that, that ability, uh, in our operations to, um, deal with many Western European partners. I, I travel extensively throughout Western Europe and around the world talking to my counterparts because they've got pieces of the puzzle we don't have, and they have different ways of looking at it. So it's incredible how much information is shared. It's done carefully. You know, you, you of course, we've seen allegations that information was, was shared and you know, bad things happened to people. But I think the, the, it works because if we think we here in Canada can cover it all, then we're smoking something because we need need the help of our allies, not just the Five Eyes, but beyond the Five Eyes as well.
0: We're talking with Phil Gursky, former CSIS analyst and president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting about this alleged terror plot in Ottawa in which a teenager has been charged with um, targeting the Jewish community. And there are, as I mentioned, numerous Jewish institutions, businesses that are on high alert because of stories like this. Uh, Are there any red flags they should be watching for?
2: There are, in terms of what people's behavior and what their ideology is. So if, I, if you'll pardon me, uh, people are still looking for Christmas gifts. I've written several books on terrorism. My first book back in 2015 was called The Threat From Within, and it outlines in some detail, based on my experience of CSIS, what it means to radicalize, what it means to adopt these ideologies. And there are always signs. This doesn't happen in a vacuum, and people, they say certain things, they post certain things, they Except certain behaviors. Now, there's no guarantee. I mean, the vast majority of people who radicalize never do anything, but I think it's, it's, it's prudent uh, parents and educators and religious leaders to take note when somebody is saying things that they probably shouldn't be saying. And, and in instances where it's very worrisome, alert the authorities to that. So we know a lot about radicalization. We know what it looks like. We've known it for decades. Uh, this is not a new phenomenon. And because of what's happening in Gaza with Hamas and Israel, It's probably going to get worse in the immediate future, hence all the uh, the attack planning and all the arrests in Germany and the Netherlands.
0: Yeah, that is a sad state of affairs, that's for sure. Phil, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Merry Christmas, best of the holiday season, and uh, thanks for the time today.
2: You too. Have a Merry Christmas. I'm sure we'll talk in the New Year.
0: You got it. Phil Gersky, a former CSIS analyst, now the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, offering his thoughts on this alleged terror plot in which a 15-year-old in Ottawa is facing two charges targeting the Jewish community it is really a hair-raising story to be sure
1: you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml
0: it is that time of the year when we look back at some of the big stories the hottest topics of the day when it comes to well sports or entertainment uh politics which we're going to do in just a matter of minutes and we'll do so for the remaining few days here in 2023 because there's been a lot to talk about here's
1: the problem with the leader of the opposition he is in love with the sound of his own voice and his own facts but he doesn't actually check the facts
0: so the high school drama teacher over here accuses
3: others of liking the sounds of their own voices this from a guy who if he were made of chocolate he would eat himself (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
0: Mr. Speaker, I was a high school teacher before getting into politics and I'm having a little trouble
3: remembering what exactly the job that the leader of the opposition had before getting into politics.
0: Now, One of the highlights or perhaps the lowlights of the bickering that takes place on a daily basis or somewhat daily basis in the House of Commons. What were some of the biggest stories in federal politics in 2023? Well, let's tackle them with our next guest. John Perinak is a public affairs and strategic communications consultant and principal with Strategy Corp. And joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. John, welcome to the show. How are you? Good morning, great, thanks for having me. I would suggest the biggest story of 2023 remains the high cost of living. You might agree or disagree, but on that scope, has any federal leader stood out from the crowd in addressing this issue?
3: You know what, that's a great point, point. and I think that is the big issue domestically is the cost of living, whether it's housing or groceries, it's been something that's really just pressuring all Canadians. So, I think that uh, Justin Trudeau had a rough go of it. Uh, On this issue, um, I think they've really seen the light and turned the corner. In mid-year, they were saying that housing, for example, was not, not a responsibility of the federal government. And now we see we have a federal cabinet minister who's daily almost making announcements about more funding to make more housing available. But at the same time, the conservative leader, Pierre Polyev, he is... Uh, taken to um digital media and uh one of the most watched videos in canada is a uh 15 minute video called housing hell that he's done and he's uh trying to grasp that uh that rain for himself so i think both are really making a stab at this i think uh uh, polio probably has the upper hand at the moment but the liberals really have seen the light on that and are turning the corner
0: Another huge domestic issue, and there's a lot of foreign policy to get to, but another big domestic issue is the carbon tax. And there is not much gray area with the carbon tax. Uh, we know where the conservatives stand. We know where the, the governing liberals are standing. Uh, Pierre Poliev has made mention that the next election is going to be the carbon tax election. Can you foresee
3: that? You know, they are definitely making a go of that to the point where they actually voted against a a bill to support the the Ukrainian government in their war with Russia over what they saw as a carbon tax embedded in that legislation. Um, This is something that is where, depending on where you are in Canada, matters. Uh, Out West, uh, this is a a bigger deal than it perhaps is. It is a big deal out East because we saw the Liberals cut a break for heating oil um, um, because uh, a lot of homes in Eastern Canada rely on heating oil for their heat. So uh, I think it definitely will be a um, a marquee issue going forward, but it's it's one that is I think a bit murky at the moment, which way it's going to go with the majority of Canadians.
0: The last uh, domestic issue that I'll talk about, and I'll I'll, I'll mention it because it's going to impact a lot of Canadians when it eventually comes in, and that's the new dental care plan or program. Because the NDP, with their confidence and supply agreement with the Liberals, really had a hand in this. Come election time. How much do you think the NDP is going to capitalize on that dental care plan at the polls?
3: Well, this is it, right? the The, the NDP are going to be able to show this policy as a, a evidence of of why getting together with the Liberals to support the minority government uh, is, is it pay dividends for NDP voters. It it really just depends on how how. Uh, many Canadians are going to look at this and say, "Yeah, this is something I'm going to, I'm going to turn my vote on." It's definitely going to be a, a benefit to the Canadians who will qualify for it, but it's—I am not sure how much it's really going to turn votes at the at the end of the day. Now, mind you, an election isn't on the horizon. I don't think. I don't think we're looking at an election until probably 2025 at the earliest. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. John Perinak is our guest,
0: public affairs and strategic communications consultant and principal with Strategy Corp. is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Foreign policy wise, there's a lot to chew on in 2023, whether it's the war in the Middle East, the war in Ukraine, uh, the prime minister accusing India of assassinating a Canadian sick leader, uh, election interference by China. And, and maybe we'll start with that one. Certainly an eye opener, not too surprising. It cost a liberal caucus member his seat uh, with the liberals. Are we any further ahead with election interference?
3: You know what? My kids had this book growing up called "Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day." Well, this was <laughs> Justin Trudeau's terrible, horrible, very, very bad year when it comes to events just uh, occurring on the foreign policy front. The, you know, it seems it seems like we've forgotten almost about the the Chinese election interference um, uh, issue from the start of the year. Uh, it definitely was something that the Liberals had trouble managing. You know, as they recall, uh, they tried to appoint David Johnson, the former. Um, Governor General to to lead a inquiry on it, and that didn't turn out so well. And um, it's really gotten blown off the radar, though, by the subsequent events this year, um, which which frankly are even more divisive in many ways.
0: Well, and one of those is uh, the Israel-Hamas war, and I think we're all in agreement that Hamas needs to be stopped, but there are rallies on a daily, if not uh, you know, weekly basis in this country from uh, uh, Palestinians who wants a peace. Canada has kind of switched gears in terms of whether or not it wants a ceasefire or not, uh, going against what the U.S. has wanted all along. What do you make of how the government has handled this issue?
3: This is a really hard one for them because this is where, you know, sort of uh, doing... Uh, what they would probably want to do on a foreign policy basis bumps up against domestic politics, as you said. You know, we've got a uh, government of Israel fighting a terrorist organization, uh, but there's a lot of innocent people caught in the mix as well, and that is a difficult issue to manage. Uh, regardless, I think the government is really, the tr- federal government is really trying to find its footing here. Um, they're trying to show support for Israel at the same time as they're trying to uh, thread the needle of. You know, opposing Hamas, but showing some, getting the Israel to show some restraint in its in its war against Hamas to to provide some reprieve for the the civilians caught in the mix. And this has the impact because there's a lot of voters in Canada who uh, fall on both sides of that issue. And uh, for the government, it's it's really hard for them to navigate that. And I think um, they're really still trying to find the right footing. Uh, to be frank,
0: there's a lot more we can touch on when it comes to the year that was in federal politics, but we'll leave it there as we're plumb out of time. John, appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for having me. John Piranak is a public affairs and strategic communications consultant and principal with Strategy Corps.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Well, there was a lot happening in federal politics, as we just heard, in 2023. There's also a lot to chew on in 2023 when it came to politics in this province.
4: When I make a mistake, I'll fix them and I'll learn from them. Because that's what I promised I would do. And in the next election,
0: you'll have the chance to decide how I've done. Well, the Greenbelt gaffe, one of the many flip-flops in this year by the governing progressive conservatives under Premier Doug Ford. As we look back at the year that was in politics in this province with Sabrina Nanji, the founder and publisher of Queens Park Observer, who joins us now on GMH. Sabrina, welcome back. How are you?
5: Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me.
0: I've lost count of the Doug Ford flip flops this year. Have you have you been keeping track?
5: <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, I I don't blame you. There's been quite a few backtracks. Uh, as we heard at the outset, you know, you know, walking back this controversial decision to open up the Greenbelt, I think, was a major one for the Ford government. But there has been this long list uh, in recent weeks that especially related to the housing file and and land use planning, you know, obviously a a perennial hot potato for this government in particular. I mean, I think it's really been a, a year of questioning the Ford government's credibility because if you're just going to walk back everything you know virtually almost everything that uh is somewhat controversial I, the question is you know how can we really trust this government uh to to do what they say they're going to do and so I really think this is going to be the theme for the Ford conservatives in 2024
0: yeah there's really two ways to look at this flip-flopping number one is you know Doug Ford is you know he's listening to the people and you know when he does it or when he's hearing something that uh, makes him think, okay, we've got to go the other way. You know, some people might read into that, okay, he's doing what we are asking of of him. The other side is, why don't they get it right in the first place?
5: yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And we did hear the premier try to spin this when when he was asked about this steady string of reversals, right? He said, this just shows that his government is willing to listen. They're willing to listen to the experts and, you know, uh, change course when, when the signs are, are telling them to do so. But you're right. It, it's like, why wasn't this done in the first place? And I think in the, on the green belt in particular, it, we we know already from our independent watchdogs, the Auditor General and the Ethics Commissioner, that this was you know a rushed, biased process. And now we've got the RCMP sniffing around. Uh, you know we don't really have much detail or, or timelines on how that investigation is going, but we know that ministry officials have already started to be questioned. The RCMP is doing its work, and so I think that this is another looming albatross hanging over the Ford government's head right now as they head into 2024. Of course, you know, any updates on that file has just been a gift for opposition critics who are trying to to hold Ford's feet to the fire. Uh, but it's still at the end of the day, you know, this seems to be the Teflon premier. We have seen recent polling suggesting that now that Bonnie Crombie is officially leader of the Liberals, they, they may be making a bit of a comeback. But Doug Ford and the Conservatives are still reigning supreme in Ontario.
0: I guess it makes sense. We have a Teflon Prime Minister, we have a Teflon Premier here in Ontario. I, I would guess that you know Ford Nation will probably admit that they've had one too many oops moments in 2023, but did the opposition NDP capitalize as best they could?
5: Yeah, that's a that's a good question and. I definitely think that the opposition was handed a, a present, you know, in what's going on with the Green Belt in the, this long line of reversals. It almost feels like this past year, since the Ford government got its second mandate in 2022, was almost a complete waste. I mean, they have backtracked on much of their, you know, major policies that, that have come forward in the last year. But the opposition itself is also having uh, growing pains, you could say. I mean, Bonnie Crombie and the Liberals. Uh, that while that was an exciting leadership race, you know, she has sort of stumbled out of the gate. The first rule of politics is to define yourself before your critics can define you. And we've already seen both the NDP and the the conservatives, you know, really attacking Bonnie Crombie, painting her with this brush of, of being an elitist and out of touch Uh, for, for Marit Stiles, you know, she's coming up on, on just over a year as, as NDP leader, and she's had her fair share of stumbles as well. I'm thinking of the Sarah Jama controversy uh, over in your neck of the woods in Hamilton. Um, The, you know, Kitchener center was a by-election loss that went to the greens. So the greens are feeling really good about it. But I think that the person who had the most to lose there was Marit Stiles and the NDP And so they're really going to be um, you know, upping their game, I think, in in 2024 and going forward. But it's still early days. You know, the next election is still a long ways out. Most new leaders have a bit of growing pains and need to settle into the job. So I still think there's time for Mart Stiles. But, you know, there's a lot of opportunities here that the Ford government is giving her to make her job as official opposition leader easier. And I'm not sure if she's really been able to, uh, you know, ca- capture that uh, at, maybe as best as she would like. Well, one
0: thing is for certain uh, when it comes to 20 20- 2024 and beyond. Those who are interested in provincial politics can check out the latest, greatest online at qpobserver.ca. Sabrina, always appreciate your time. Thanks and uh, best of the holiday season. Thanks. Merry Christmas. Sabrina Angie is the founder and publisher of Queen's Park Observer. Again, online, qpobserver.ca.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: The Canadian Real Estate Association is out with its latest housing outlook. What is next? for the housing market in 2024, and, and how did 2023 go? Christopher Alexander is the president of REMAX Canada and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Christopher, good morning, how are you?
6: I'm great, Rick, how you doing? I'm
0: good. The latest reports in November basically shows that home buyers and home sellers pressed pause. Is that what you saw?
6: Yes, it's been a very interesting marketplace, but that really was the tale, certainly over the last couple of months.
0: Is that normal for this time of the year, though?
6: Yes, but this year feels a little bit. uh, There's a little bit more added uh, pause in the marketplace. I mean, uh, listing inventory is down month over month now for since the end of October, and buyers are just on the sidelines. And the more people that I talk to at the street level, they're just saying they're waiting for conditions to improve, whether they're a buyer or a seller.
0: And are those conditions at the end of the day interest rates or mortgage rates, or is it more to that?
6: Well, the uncertainty and inconsistency from the Bank of Canada has really been the overwhelming factor in how the market went this year and really over the last couple of years. And, you know, the thing to remember though is real estate is not a typical commodity. I think during the pandemic years, a lot of consumers treated it that way, Um, but it is shelter, it's a basic need, and you can't really put your plans on hold forever, and so I think most of us in the industry are seeing uh, or expecting signs of a big improvement towards the the middle of uh, next year and uh, towards the end of spring.
0: Christopher Alexander is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900-CHML. Christopher is the president of REMAX Canada as we reflect on the latest housing outlook uh, for November. And it shows basically that uh, buyers and sellers didn't do a lot of, well, buying or selling in, in November, that is for sure. When it comes to home prices this year, there were many who were predicting... The bubble's going to burst. There's going to be a crash in the market. When we look at from November to November 2022 to 2023, there's only one province in this country, and that is Manitoba, that actually recorded a decrease. So has the bubble already burst, or is that still to come?
6: Oh, yeah. I think, really, we took the bulk of our correction in, in 2022, and this year it's been a bit of a stalemate between uh, buyers and sellers and, you know, certain markets perform better than others, but that's normal. And we're back to that normal, um, cycle where you have different provinces and different markets performing better than others. Uh, but as I said, I mean, we took the bulk of our pricing correction in 2022 and this year has really been nominal, whether it's prices going up or going down.
0: Overall, as a country, we're up 2% year over year in terms of the residential average price of a home being sold. Uh, Ontario not even cracking the 1% figure, although B.C. more than 6%, Alberta 6%, uh, Nova Scotia well over 10%. Are we seeing those price escalations because in, in uh, in, in many circumstances, Ontarians are moving to those provinces?
6: Yeah, Ontario really has driven a lot of activity outside of uh, the province. I mean, you mentioned Atlanta, Canada, uh, Alberta. Uh, BC played a big role in Alberta as well. But, um, yeah, I just, I just think that this year, the way it's shaped up, has uh, been a really odd year. We had that really big burst of activity in the spring when the Bank of Canada decided to hold rates. That didn't materialize over the fall, but... What I'm really encouraged by is there hasn't been the overwhelming uh, run-up in listing inventory that a lot of people expected due to interest rates. And it looks like Canadians are in a pretty decent equity position overall. And it's allowed them to stay in the driver's seat and take their homes off the market if they're not getting the price they want.
0: Christopher, when it comes to 2024, what are, are you thinking? What are most people anticipating is going to happen next year?
6: It'll probably be a slow start to the year. Uh, as I mentioned, the stalemate between buyers and sellers, I don't see that changing, but I do think that towards the middle and late spring, we are going to see robust activity uh, so long as you know things stay in check from uh, an interest rate perspective. And if we even get a hint of a decrease uh, or an actual decrease, I think we'll see a huge return to the market. And we have to remember that in Canada, we still have a housing supply crisis and housing starts are down for three months in a row now. And so uh, it could be really short order until we get back to a frenzied pace that we saw, uh, you know, from 2020 till the end of uh, 21.
0: Christopher, thank you so much for your time and shining a spotlight on uh, the latest analysis of what's happening in the real estate market in this country.
6: Thanks for having me.
0: Christopher Alexander is the president of REMAX Canada, and you can find out more on what is happening in real estate by listening to the Golfy Real Estate Show, uh, Saturdays at 9, as well as Sold on Hamilton with Judy Marcelles, which happens uh, once a month here on 900CHML on Saturday.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900CHML.
0: One of the organizations that benefits and receives funds, the money that you donate to the Children's Fund, is Ronald McDonald House Charities, South Central Ontario, and joining us now from Ronald McDonald House Charities is Megan Moore, the director of advancement and development. Megan, good morning. How are you today?
7: Good morning. Thank you so
0: much for having me. How does the Children's Fund help Ronald McDonald House?
7: It's a huge community partner. You know, uh, every year uh, uh, the the Children's Wish and the 100 CHML, nine hundred CHML really helps us by being an adopter room donor at the house so if you can imagine we have families that are traveling far away from their home to be close to their child in hospital and so through this as an adopter room donor we make sure that families can stay close to their child in hospital and not only that in fact last week we just picked up a donation of toys and toiletry items for our family through this amazing fundraiser. So a huge community partner.
0: That is uh, awesome to hear that uh, the donations, whether it's toys or those personal hygiene items uh, or the financial donations that come in are making a big difference at Ronald McDonald House Charities. What's it like in the house right now?
7: We're full. So um, as you are preparing for the holidays, as you're making sure that you have a cozy space and food in your home, We are doing the same for the 40 families that are living at our house right now. Um, You know, year round children need to be in the hospital, whether it's for ongoing treatment or or for an illness. And so we are making our house a cozy home away from home for the 40 families, nearly 100 people are staying at our house right now and will be here throughout the holidays.
0: And this is an important part of the community, Ronald McDonald House Charities, because as you mentioned, here's 40 families who have children at McMaster Children's Hospital. They're going through, in some cases, life-saving operations or procedures. And this is one thing that they don't have to worry about. They don't have to go to a hotel. They don't have to seek an Airbnb, if that's the case. Here is a facility that they can lay their head down and just grab, you know, a a few minutes apiece.
7: Absolutely. It's the way that we think about our mission is food and shelter, right? If we can take that off of the table so that families don't have to worry about what they're going to eat or where they're going to sleep. They can just focus on caring for their child. And we have this house across the street from McMaster Children's Hospital, the 40 families that I spoke of. But we also have two family rooms inside the hospital. And we see over 150,000 visits to those family rooms every year. So it's You know, a beautiful living room, a kitchen, complimentary food. So even if um, a family never stayed at our house, we will still care for them inside the hospital as well.
0: Is the house always full?
7: Uh, About year round right now. uh, It's a a blessing and a curse, a blessing that we're able to be there for families and a curse that um, we need to be there for families. And uh, we run at capacity Uh, close to capacity year round.
0: It wasn't that long ago that uh, the local Ronald McDonald House here in Hamilton uh, went through a a renovation and an expansion. Uh, Is more of that planned? Do we need to make this thing even bigger?
7: Well, it's funny that you should say that. I'd love to bring you on a tour because we're always doing renovations to our house, not necessarily just to make more rooms, though we just added two more rooms to our house but also to renovate our dining room. We worked with Mountain View Building Group last year to update our dining room. This year, we'll be building a playground in our backyard with the slide and swings. We're also renovating um, our TV room in the basement and a craft room. So not just necessarily bigger, but also just like you would upkeep your house. We want to continue to renovate our house because if you are going to live at our home, we we want it to be a place that's that's beautiful and welcoming for you.
0: Some of your donations are going to help uh, great organizations like Ronald McDonald House Charity South Central Ontario. You can find them online at rmhcsco.ca and donate to the Children's Fund today by texting the word donate to 30333 or online at 900chml.com. We're chatting with Megan Moore, the Director of Advancement and Development. Uh, I'm sure you have a story or two to share in terms of a family or a child who was um, really grateful that they were there at Ronald McDonald House because it would have been a very different scenario otherwise. Can you share maybe a story or two?
7: Absolutely. You know, we actually have a family who's spent the last three Christmases at our house. They've stayed at our house for over 150 nights, over 15 different visits. Um, They have a three-year-old who um, is undergoing some Uh, ongoing heart treatment but they also have a five-year-old that's just trying to be a five-year-old and so while their child is in the hospital and they're caring for him they're really trying to make a normal life for their other child Um, and around the holiday season that's particularly hard so they are back at our house now again their third Christmas that they'll likely be staying at our house so you know the ways that we try to make that special and and not too hard for the family is we have a winter wonderland set up with toys that parents can come quote-unquote shopping in our winter wonderland because you don't have time to go shopping right now and um we just had a frozen feast with olaf and anna (laughs) and elsa on the weekend we'll have a big christmas feast last week so you know we have families from all over southern ontario that are staying at our house and so when you have a child in the hospital you don't want to be driving two hours every day to see your child or or be far away uh, if you get that call so um this this family that i'm speaking of is one of many but um they'll be here for this christmas and uh we're we're gonna make it special for them this year
0: it's really heartwarming to hear that ronald mcdonald house charities south central ontario is caring for so many uh, families, and uh, and especially their children, uh, it, it's really bittersweet knowing that, you know, the, the circumstances of why they're there, but, um, uh, you know, the, w- whether it's, you know, cooking a meal or just having a great place to stay and uh, having that peace of mind, that goes a long way. Megan, really appreciate your time. Thanks for doing what you do.
7: Thank you so much for supporting our house and our families.
0: Megan Moore is with Ronald McDonald House Charity, South Central Ontario, online, rmhcsco.ca. c. just Google Ronald McDonald House Hamilton, you will find them.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Happy Holidays Hamilton continues here on GMH. And today we're focusing on Christmas TV specials and the legacy that was provided long ago by Rankin Bass, which issued some amazing, iconic, and still to this day, very popular TV specials. Here to talk about it is Rick Goldschmidt, an illustrator and cartoonist. Rick, good morning. Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton. Hey, good morning. Merry Christmas. Same to you. It is amazing that each and every year at this time of the year, these TV specials, and I would say, you know, the king of them all, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, from 1964, are still going strong. What makes them
4: so popular still to this day? Well, next year Rudolph will be 60, and uh, really the the writing of Romeo Muller is kind of at the core of it because he wrote with a lot of heart and warmth, and he wrote for the whole entire family. He really didn't write for just children, and that's what makes their, their work unique.
0: Absolutely. There's so many fun facts that I found out about... Um, many of these TV specials, including Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, in which one of them, I was absolutely astounded by that most of the voice actors were Canadian.
4: <laughs> right. They were put together by Bernard Cowan. And um, some of them I, I became friends with later in life. Um, Billy Mae Richards <laughs> and I did a lot of radio interviews. She was the voice of Rudolph. And she could still do the voice all the way up until she passed. So um, they were all very talented. And they really came out of radio. Um, They had to visualize these characters like it was a radio show when they recorded the voices. So uh, they did do an amazing job.
0: Yeah, because let's not forget this was stop-motion animation. They, They were not presenting themselves as a character on stage. They were kind of trying to, you know, in their minds, try to picture what Rudolph was looking like and doing and, and Santa Claus and, and, and so forth.
4: Right. And um, they were very successful. And it wasn't until late in the, uh, in the production that they brought in Burl Lives. that was kind of the idea of the network, NBC, to have a star tell the story. Originally... Um, Sam the Snowman was voiced by Larry D Mann, who did the uh, Yukon Cornelius in mm-hmm. the in the special.
0: Uh, we're talking about Rankin Bass and its legacy of Christmas TV specials with our guest Rick Oldschmidt, illustrator and cartoonist. You can check out his online blog Enchanted World of Rankin Bass He's got some great photos from years gone by on it as well. You mentioned Billy May Richards, and I did not know until this week that billy richards in the credits is actually billy may richards and was a woman and not a man
4: right um the credits that say billy like a boy's name that came in 65 and uh, originally they had it spelled correctly in the 1964 credits Hmm. and and um someone at ge decided they wanted a change and they wanted to see santa go back for the misfit toys at the end of the special and then they ended up changing the the credits where the the elf is throwing off the misfit toys with umbrellas <laughs> instead of <laughs> originally it was an elf with packages that had the credits on the packages and and that's when her name was spelled correctly
0: interesting was she sour about that
4: oh no um she actually was very happy that she her legacy would live on through Rudolph and um you know I sent her a lot of the the toys that came out after my first book and she really warmed up to uh, to the character and and to Rankin Bass
0: I also found out that most of the puppets used in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer went missing shortly after production including Santa Claus and Rudolph and they were found on Antiques Roadshow, of all places, in 2006. (laughs) It's a good thing that they were found. I mean, these are iconic.
4: Well, actually, those puppets um, I discovered in recent years are the publicity photo puppets. Oh, Arthur Arthur Rankin had puppets uh, sent to New York so they could do all the photographs with Burl Ives and Johnny Marks and for the record album cover. And then they put them on display at NBC at Rockefeller Plaza in New York until 1971, when the special switched from NBC to CBS. So, all of the actual um, screen news puppets stayed in Japan, <laughs> and some of them are on display over there in a Tadmo Shinaga exhibit that frequents the museums of Japan.
0: Very interesting, and it's awesome to take a trip down memory lane. Rick, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me. Happy holidays.
0: Same to you. Rick Oldschmidt is an illustrator and a cartoonist and clearly an expert on the world of Rankin-Bass and their legacy of Christmas TV specials. By the way, it took 18 months to produce Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer with all the stop-motion animation which all took place in Japan. It was all voiced and recorded in Toronto. 18 months, a staggering amount of time for a TV special